Good morning, everybody. How we doing? You hanging in there in the cold? I wore a long sleeve shirt today. That's how you know it's really cold. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 16. Um, though, I, as always, I will have the verses up on the PowerPoint. Uh, titled today's message, we continue our way through the book of John. There's no keyboard here. This is really throwing me off. I feel like I'm just going to go over here. Yeah, I know. I was thinking about running the laughs this morning. I didn't get a workout yet. My normal routine. Uh, we, uh, today's, the title of today's message is, is Convicted. And uh, we're going we're gonna to flash forward. You know, we, we sang this morning about the birth of our Lord. Um, and as we've been studying through the book of John... Jesus has come. The Word has been made flesh, and He's now here on earth. And we're going to fast forward um, from, from the cradle, getting close to the cross. And this is the last night we've been discussing for the last uh, several weeks, uh, Jesus' final conversation with the disciples uh, before, he, before He goes to the cross. And um, but before we get started in the verses, I wanna, we're going to get a little psychological on you. Here this morning. How many of you are familiar with the term object permanence? You know what I'm talking about, okay? All right, good. Well, this will be a learning lesson for many of you. Uh, the, the idea of object permanence is pretty simple. It's knowing an object, uh, knowing an object exists even if it is hidden. So, in other words, you can all see my hand, right? You can know that my hand exists. If I put my hand behind my back, does my hand still exist? If you say yes, then you have object permanence. That's good, okay? We're, we're learning. Um, if you don't, you don't believe that my hand actually ceases to be just because you can't see it. Now, you take that for granted every day. Object permanence is, is constantly serving you a great deal of purpose. But for a child, you're not born with that. That's something that your brain develops. And from zero to two, you're learning to understand object permanence. And that's why peekaboo can be so terrifying for a small child. Okay, they, they say this, they, this guy says, not sure if she actually left the room or just covered her face with her hands. Okay, we're not sure. And this kid, even more freaked out, you mean to tell me you don't go anywhere when we play peekaboo? You for real? See, for you, you're just playing a game. For them, they're having an existential crisis, Okay. And we don't realize what's going on, but this is the deal with small kids. And I was just visiting my friend Luke this last year down in North Carolina. And it was crazy when, when his kids would, like, when he would leave the room, like, he'd go out to the van in the driveway. He'd go out the front door, and, like, a couple of the kids are just instantly freaking out. They're bawling. They're crying. Daddy's gone. He's never coming back. He's slipped into the nexus of the universe. What's gone on? And, and daddy's coming. I know that. I'm not freaking out. I know I didn't just lose my friend forever. He'll be right back. But for these kids, they, they, you know, they don't understand that yet. And most of the time, when the parent leaves the room, it, 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 Luke's not abandoning his children. If anything, I'm doing this, I'm leaving for your good, you ingrate, right? I'm going to go get you your diaper so that you don't poop everywhere, right? I'm going to go get you your bottle so that you don't starve. Or I'm going to work, I'm going to the grocery store so you can have said bottle and said diaper, right? What I'm doing, I'm leaving you for your good. And this is exactly what's going on here in, in uh, John. Jesus is talking to his disciples. 
he knows that he's about to leave, and he's trying to explain this to them, but the disciples are struggling with object permanence. And if Jesus leaves, they are going to freak out. Look at what he says in John 16. Verse 5, he says, Now I am going to him who sent me, yet none of you asks me, where are you going? Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. Jesus tells his disciples, I'm about to go. And they hear that, and they instantly freak out. That's their knee-jerk reaction. But what they don't understand is he's leaving for their good. If Jesus doesn't leave them, he can't die on the cross and there's no forgiveness of sins. If Jesus doesn't leave them, he cannot rise again from the grave and he cannot conquer sin and Satan and death on their behalf. This is what he explains to them in verse 7. He says, But I tell you the truth. It is for your good that I am going away. And he gets more specific. Unless I go, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So he says, it's actually so much better that I go, and we've talked about this in the last chapter, that it's actually better that Jesus leaves because he's going to send the Holy Spirit to indwell each believer. And, uh, you know, with, with object permanence, permanence uh, the infant, what they're really struggling with is an extreme case of egocentrism. Okay? Got a lot of self-absorbed babies. And they're only able to see things from their own current point of view. The baby can be its only reference point, itself. And this is exactly what the disciples are struggling with here. Notice in verse 5, it says, I'm going to go away, yet none of you asks me where are you going. See, this this reveals the selfishness of the disciples. All they know is Jesus isn't going to be here with me anymore, and I don't like that. None of them takes the time to say, Jesus, why are you leaving? Where are you going? And and to take the time to think about this from Jesus' point of view what he's about to go through tomorrow. And like he said in chapter 15, that you should actually rejoice with me because I get to go back to the Father. But the disciples are only focused on themselves and how Jesus' immediate departure affects them right then and there. And, And how easy is it for us to do that as well? To only see things in our lives from our own point of view and not be able to see them from the perspective of others. Or more, most importantly, the perspective of our Father. So Jesus says, it's better that I go so that you get the Holy Spirit. And yet we see that the, the, main, the main object, the main ministry of the Holy Spirit is to point people back to the Jesus that is ascended. And we're going to f- fast forward here a few verses to verse 12. And, and Jesus says this, I have much more to say to you, more than you can bear now. He says, you can't, you guys are, you guys are already freaking out with this. I I can't say any more right now. But he says, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. Now, I think that we sometimes have a tendency to over-apply Scripture directly to ourselves, I think this verse does speak to us, and there's truth here. But we've got to remember the context. Who is Jesus speaking to here? Speaking to his disciples. And what he's telling them is, I'm about to go, and I'm going to send the Spirit to you guys, okay? Because I've got this ministry for you, this thing that I'm going to get started. It's called the church. And this is a mystery that no one had ever seen coming before. That he was going to take the Jews and the Gentiles and unite them into one body, the body of Christ. 
This was a brand new thing that the Jewish people didn't see coming, that the Gentiles didn't see coming. And so the Holy Spirit's got to come, and he's got to teach them about this. He's got to reveal to them what is yet to come. And the Holy Spirit is going to guide them into the establishing of the church, the appointing of leaders, and the writing of the New Testament. It's one of the Holy Spirit's central roles in, in, the, in the beginning of the church. And then he goes on to say in verse 14, He will bring glory to me. And that's the bottom line. The Holy Spirit, his job, his main function is to glorify Christ. He says, by, this is how he's going to do it, by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. He's going to take what is of Jesus and show it to everybody else, to point us toward the things of Christ. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said, the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. He gets a little redundant there. So the main, the main point of the Holy Spirit is to reconcile God and man. Well, why do we need reconciled? What's the problem? What's separating us? Well, this is where he takes us. This is where we're going to spend the rest of the time together this morning. We go back to verse 8. He says this, But when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and, and judgment. The role, one of the central roles of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of these three things. Sin and righteousness and judgment. And he's going to dig deeper into each one of these three. But first, let's, let's pause for a minute on what this word um, convict means. The word to convict can, can have a couple of different meanings. Uh, the first is to convict can be a, a courtroom term. That I can tell you that to convict somebody is to say what you are guilty of and what the sentence is. Okay? So when the Holy Spirit convicts us, He tells you, you're guilty of sin. You have sinned against God. And your sentence is hell. Eternal separation from Him. Okay, that's, that's to convict in the, in the courtroom sense. But there's also a second sense of the word to convict, and it means to convince. This is a, a personal, a subjective realization of your sin. It's looking in the mirror and seeing your sin for what it really is. To become aware of the depths of your own wickedness. And, and here's, here's the reality. The Holy Spirit wants to convince me of my sin so that he does not have to convict me of my sin. Does that make sense? Think of it this way. Pain. All right, we've all experienced it. Let me ask you this: Is this, is pain a good thing or a bad thing? And now, initially, our first reaction would be, "Well, pain's a bad thing. I don't, I don't want to feel pain. Pain is bad, right? We we go to great lengths to relieve pain, to prevent pain. But if we didn't experience pain, then we wouldn't realize that we need medical attention, and we'd never go to the doctor to fix the problem." And that's what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. He, he reveals sin to us. He allows us to feel that pain. Why? He's not a killjoy. He's not a sadomasochist. The Holy Spirit wants us to realize that we need help so that we might go to the one with the remedy. See, the Holy Spirit wants to convince us of our sinfulness to drive us to Jesus so that he does not have to convince, convict us of our sin and drive us to hell. And, and, and no one is going to ask for a solution 
until they see the need for it. The only person who will never come to God is the one who does not recognize his own sinfulness against God. And, 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 and uh, this is the gospel, okay? Paul said this in Corinthians 15. He said, Christ died for our sins, right? This is the gospel. And if you remove these three words, for our sins, and just say Christ died, it ceases to be the gospel. Because if you just say Christ died, a lot of people have died. We're all going to die. What separated Christ's death was that he died for our sins, And if we take away those words for our sins, then you ask the question, well, what are we saved from? See, the the good news can only be good if we realize how bad the bad news is. So then he dives deeper into here, and he shows us these three things, that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. So let's look at these three things together. He says he convicts us in regard to sin... Because men do not believe me. Now notice here the singular form. You notice how he did not say in regard to sins. He said in regard to sin. There is one sin that it it all boils down to. There's the the chief sin of, of all sins. The bottom line is not believing in Jesus. See, if if everyone believed in Jesus, if everybody trusted Him, fully depended on Him, that He is who He says He is, then the Holy Spirit wouldn't have to convict us of anything. Because we would all fully trust Him and we'd be good to go. John actually clarified this. We rewind 13 chapters ago. And look at what John said in John chapter 3. He said, Whoever believes in Him, Jesus, is not condemned. Period. Well, comma, I guess, technically. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is what determines whether or not we're condemned. It's not about how good you are. It's not about how good you stay away from the bad things and resist temptation and your church attendance. Your condemnation or your not being condemned rests on one thing and one thing only. Do you believe in Jesus? And again, this is the the Holy Spirit's main purpose is to point us toward Him. So here's the question. How do I know if it's the Holy Spirit in me that's convicting me. Because isn't that kind of a subjective thing? I mean, how do I know that that's the Spirit talking to me? How do I know that that's the Spirit moving in me? Well, there's, there's one question that you ask. Is he pointing you to Jesus? That's, that's how we know the difference between the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit and the shame and the guilt that Satan wants to drive you toward. See, if what you're experiencing is just this inward focus where I'm, I'm caught up and I'm looking at what I'm doing wrong and it's tripping me up and it's making me feel unworthy and, and it's, it's this look toward myself, that's not the Holy Spirit. But if he's showing you, man, look at, yeah, you're not great, all right? You mess up a lot. You can't do anything good, but here's the one who can provide for you everything you need. Here's the one who can be good on your behalf. We see our need, but then we're pointed to the Savior. 
See, the Holy Spirit is not there to just come and point out every bad thing that you do. He's not just sitting there whispering in your ear every time you mess up. Just there to, like that annoying kid in school that always has the right answer and shows you that you don't know what you're talking about. He wants to show you what he needs to show you in order to point you toward your Savior. So that process can only happen when our sin is revealed to us. So that is one of the works of the Spirit. The second one, he, he wants to convict the world of guilt in regard to righteousness. He says, why? Because I, Jesus, am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And we're going to get to what that means in a second. But see, the Holy Spirit does not only show us how bad our sin is, but he's here to show us how good Christ is. See, we, we have, I think we have a, often have a distorted view of what is right and what is good. And this comes from comparing ourselves with each other. Because I'll say, well, you know, yeah, am I perfect? No. But I'm way better than that guy. And this is like, this would be like living in a landfill and claiming that I have the best cardboard house out of anybody in the landfill. And I go around bragging about how wonderful my cardboard house is. And look at this cardboard garage I built for my shopping cart and like how great everything is. And you can go, that's, that's great, congratulations, but you're still not going to meet OSHA's standards, right? You have the best house and it's still made of trash. And, and that's, that's what we do when we compare ourselves with one another. You remember the story in Luke 18 of the Pharisee and the tax collector who come to the temple to worship God? And remember what the, the Pharisee said? So the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Because God, thank you that you've made me so great, so much better than these other losers, than these other sinners. And what does Jesus say? He says, I don't accept this guy. I accept the tax collector who came beating his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. Paul says in, in, in 2 Corinthians, we do not dare, we do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they, are measure, when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. He says when we play this game where we try to set up our own righteousness based on if we're better or worse than somebody else, he says you are a fool. The standard is not each other. The standard is and always will be the Lord Jesus. And no one lives up to that. And that's why the Holy Spirit convicts us and shows us the righteousness of Jesus. To show us how far we are from His holiness, from His goodness, from His perfection. The Holy Spirit elevates Jesus and in the process we see that we're nowhere near that that we could never touch the righteousness of Jesus. So why is it then that he says, in regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer? What does he mean? Well, remember the Jews, up to that point, what's going to happen tomorrow? They want to crucify him, right? Like, that's what they're planning to do. And why are they going to crucify him? Because they say he's a blasphemer. Which means he's claiming, Jesus has made this audacious claim that he is God that he is the king, that he is the coming Messiah. And, and the Jewish people do not believe him, and therefore they believe that he deserves the worst kind of death imaginable. Well, was it a liar who was crucified? Was it a, a liar that was buried? 
Was it a liar that three days later came up from the grave, defeating death? Was it a liar that hopped on a cloud and went back up to the Father? And a liar that, that one, name, one day, every knee, all of creation will bow the knee to? See, Jesus going to the Father, more importantly, the Father accepting Jesus into his presence, was the greatest proof of Jesus' righteousness. See, God is perfect, and he can only have perfection in his presence. So him accepting, him being able to go to the Father demonstrates that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be. That Jesus was God, and therefore able to make the payment for our sins. And now, we can't see Jesus, right? He's not here. And so the Holy Spirit has to point this out to us, because we don't have Jesus in flesh to see it face to face. Now you say, well, God only accepts perfection in his, stand, in his sight? That doesn't bode well for me, because the Holy Spirit just showed me, just convinced me, that I am utterly sinful. And that's exactly the point. And that's why 2 Corinthians says, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, who had no sin, who was perfect, to be sin for us. Why? So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. We can, we can never get away from this truth. This is, think of this in terms of, of a bank account. In my account, I was in the red, right? Deep, deep, deep in the red. And completely unable to make one penny of a payment toward getting out of that debt. And Christ's account is perfection. And what happened, what I receive in this deal, is for us to switch bank accounts. He takes my debt and puts it in his account and completely pays for it. But not only that, he takes his righteousness and sticks it into my account so that when God looks down at me, what does he see? He does not see that debt that I could not pay. He sees the perfection of Christ. Not my own, but that of the Savior. And that's why Paul says in Romans 5, but people are declared righteous not because of their work, but because of their faith. It is not about me cleaning up my act in hopes that God will accept me and that he will love me. It goes back to the verse 9. The entire issue is whether or not I believe Jesus and accept his righteous payment into my account. And remember, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is, this is not your job. His job is to convince you of the beauty and the wonder of the Savior. My job is to believe. And he guides us to the place where we can say, we can echo the heart of Paul, who said, yes, everything else in this world, everything else is worthless when compared with the priceless gain of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I might have Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own goodness or my ability to obey God's law, but I trust Christ to save me. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. Last one here. He says he wants to convict the world of guilt in regard to judgment. In regard to judgment, because the prince of this world 
now stands condemned. Who's the prince of this world? This is a reference to Satan, reference to the devil. And, and what he's saying is that he says, right now, right now, Satan stands condemned. Satan stands judged. And what does that mean? Well, what, what did Satan want to accomplish? Like, what was his goal? What was his mission? We know if we go back even before the Garden of Eden, Satan's goal was to become like the Most High. Satan wanted to be worshipped. Satan wanted to be God. And he knows that as long as he can get people to not worship God, he's getting that. Anytime we're worshipping ourselves, it's, it's, you're, serving, you're serving the devil or you're serving the Lord. You're worshipping God or you're worshipping Satan. These are our two options. So as long as he can keep us separated from God, he's achieving his purposes. And so he sees right now in this moment, this is, these are hours before Jesus is about to be betrayed, and he has Jesus backed into this corner. And he thinks he's about to seal the fate of mankind forever. If he can take out Jesus, he's got us in death's stranglehold for the rest of eternity. And he gets what he wants. But Jesus had other plans. Go ahead, it says in, in Hebrews. You remember the, the, the promise back in the garden that the Satan would bruise Christ's heel, but Christ would crush his head. We, we know how the story unfolds. Hebrews 2 says this, and follow this train of thought. It says, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, Jesus also became flesh and blood by being born in human form. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. See, Satan held the power of death and Jesus could, as God, Jesus couldn't die, right? God is eternal. So he had to take the form of a human being. He was God, so he was perfect, because man can't make the payment. But he also had to become man so that he could actually die. And we see in that that the only solution was Jesus, who was fully God and fully man. And he did that. He came down and he died so that he could take the power of death away from Satan once and for all. Satan no longer has the power of death over us. And then it says, I love this in Colossians 2. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus was victorious. And he takes away all the power that Satan had. And let's look at, let's look at Satan's fate. Where's Satan? Where this, this doesn't end well for Satan, right? And if you go to, to Revelation 20, which who wrote this revelation? The revelation's the same author as the book of the Gospel of John, right? It's John the Apostle, which is cool. We see this coming to fruition, what we read in this chapter, that the Holy Spirit was going to show these men things that were yet to come, and he did. He revealed to John how the story was going to end. He showed him the final chapters, and then John recorded it for us. And he says this in, in Revelation 20. See, Jesus is going to come, and he's going to reign for a thousand years on this earth. And the sweet thing is, those of us that are in the church, we get to rule and reign with him. Think about that for a second. And, then, and he's going to let Satan run around and do his thing for a thousand years. And then at the end of it, he shows us what Satan's fate's going to be. He says in verse 10, Then the devil, who betrayed them, the people on earth, was thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. That's Satan's fate. Okay, the book's written on him. We know how the story ends for Satan. He loses. And isn't that great? I mean, praise the Lord that we know that. I mean, imagine if we didn't know. It's God and Satan, and what kind of, we'll choose God's side because he seems to be more popular in the Bible, but we don't really know how it's going to end. We, we see, we get to read the end of the story. 
And then John takes the spotlight and he shifts it from Satan to us. He says in verse 11, And I saw a great white throne, and I saw the one who was sitting on it. And look at this. The earth and sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. So after Satan's cast into the fire, this great white throne appears. And imagine this in your mind's eye. And God comes and he sits on this throne. And all of creation wants to run away. Wants to flee from his radiance and his holiness. And then in verse 12 it says, I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to the things written in the books, according to what they had done. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. The sobering reality. This is what Jesus is saying. Listen, there's a coming judgment. And the book of life is going to be opened. And you have one of two options. Your name is written in the book of life and you live with God forever. Or your name is not written in the book of life and you have the exact same fate as Satan. And you will be thrown into the lake of fire for the rest of eternity. It's not a feel-good story. But the Holy Spirit's job is to convince us, to convince the world that this judgment is coming and that there are only two options. And if Satan, if Satan, the leader of this camp, I think this is, this is Jesus' point in what he was saying, if Satan, the leader of this camp, is going to be thrown into the lake of fire, what do you think is going to happen to you? Because Satan's already been condemned. <clears throat> Excuse me. Jesus hadn't even died on the cross yet, but the book was as good as written. He says, Satan's done. He's judged. It's over. You want to follow him? You want to make the same choice that he did to be your own God? To search for your own worship and glory instead of getting, acknowledging that I'm the only one worthy of that? We know how it ends. And I think there's, there's an urgency in this world that most people don't feel. And I think we get so wrapped up into the temporary things of this world. Money, entertainment, earthly security, the here and now. And we're kind of like people aboard this airplane that's, that's, just, that's hurtling down to the earth and is going to crash any minute. But, but instead of recognizing the, the coming crash and, and, and the need to get out of that airplane, to find a parachute and get, hit the eject button... We get so wrapped up in making sure that it's a comfortable flight. Right? I'm like, where are my peanuts? You know, where's that little cup with the ginger ale? Two drinks and it's gone, you know? And I'm left with a whole cup of ice. And, you know, where's my fuzzy in-flight movie? My neck pillow! Where is my neck pillow? Right? And we get, we get so... We, I, in five minutes, this plane is about to crash into the ground. And all I can worry about is my neck pillow. And I think the Holy Spirit's job is to, to show us, to show the world, that this crash is about to happen. And, and he shows us that, that we have no ability to save ourselves from this flight. We cannot fashion a parachute for ourselves. But then he reveals to us that Jesus is the only means of escape, the only means of salvation. And he, and he shows us this crash is going to come. I think that's what he's saying here when he convicts the world of sin and righteousness and, and judgment. And I want to close with this thought. Kind of go back full circle to the idea of conviction. This word, um, conviction, in, in the Greek, it carried this idea of to present 
or expose facts to convince of the truth. And that's all the Holy Spirit is here to do, is to show us reality for what it really is. And you think of it in terms of a spotlight. He takes the spotlight and he, he turns it on, on me and you, and he shows us the depths of our own hearts, the wickedness and the inability to do anything about that. He convicts us of our own sin, convinces us of our sin before he has to convict us of our sin. And then the next one is that he then turns the spotlight onto Jesus, and he shows us the righteousness of our Savior. <clears throat> and then finally, he takes that spotlight and he shows it shines it on to the judgment that is to come. That we have a decision to make. And maybe some of you in this room this morning, maybe you've never made that decision. And I don't care how long you've been coming to church. That's not what this is about. Maybe you've never fully understood that there is a judgment coming and, and to ask yourself, where is my trust? What am I believing in? And for those of us who have made this decision, it's easy to think, well, you know, a message like this this is for unbelievers. This is cool. This is good evangelism. We cannot miss the point. That the, we need the Holy Spirit on a daily basis to point us back to Christ. My heart is so prone to wander. It's so prone to go back to, I want to be in control, and I echo the heart of Satan, where I want to be God, and I want to be worshipped, and, and I want to bank on my own goodness so that I can stand on my own two feet. And on a daily basis, we need the Holy Spirit to remind us of our own inabilities, to remind us of Christ's all-sufficiency, and to lead us to that point where we trust Him. And so you say, well, how do we do that? How does the convicting of the Holy Spirit work? Notice we didn't spend any time this morning really delving into that, because I don't think that's the point. Like, I'm not going to present to us like 13 steps of how the Holy Spirit convicts. I think he uses all means possible. He's going to use the Word of God as we're reading through it. He's going to use other people. I think sometimes he speaks to us audibly through dreams, through visions. He uses trials in our lives. He uses every single tool available and, and, and the point of it is, we know that it's the Holy Spirit working out. You know that still small voice inside when you hear it. You know when he's pointing out things that you shouldn't be doing and, and things that you should be doing. But that's not, we can't let that be the end of not doing good, bad things and doing good things. The point of the Holy Spirit, he said in verse 13, he will guide you into all truth. And what is truth? Jesus said two chapters ago, I am the truth. And we will know it's the Holy Spirit in our lives when we see that at the end, he's using these things to point us to Jesus. Pray that we have open ears and open eyes to hear and to see what the Spirit is revealing to us. Father, we thank you so much that you came into this world. And as we, we, we reflect on that this time of the year, and think about the fact that you left heaven to come down to the earth, to get into a manger, be, get messy, roll around in the dirt with us. And you took on that humanity so that you could die. And you, you died so that you could defeat the power of death that Satan had over us. And Father, the reality is that we are sinful. That, that, that all we can do as sinners is sin. 
And there's nothing we can do to please you, nothing we can do to gain your approval. But Father, again and again, we go back to that lie and think that we can do it on our own. Father, convict us. I pray that the Holy Spirit would work in this community at Peninsula Grace, uh, these people and, and our brothers and our sisters, that we would continually remind one another as iron sharpens iron. There's only one thing in our lives that we need. And it's not a suit of fig leaves to hide our sin, to hide our shame, to hide our guilt, but that we can be comfortably exposed in our sin, knowing that we have a Savior, knowing that we have been declared right in your sight, not based on our works, not based on our performance, but based on what your Son has done for us. Father, when we fully embrace your Son who came to this world for us, may you convict us of our sin, May you show us his righteousness and lead us to the point of decision where we'll lay everything down to follow your son, the great lover of our souls. It's in his name we pray. Amen.